Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Policy Viz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. On this week's episode, I get to sit down and chat with Klaus Wilkie, whose new book, Fundamentals of Data Visualization, has just been published from O'Reilly. Uh, it's, a, it's a great review of uh, the fundamentals of data viz, um, mostly built in R. Um, it has some great images in it, really well put together. Um, I'm really enjoying uh, making my way through it. Uh, of course, I've been uh, looking at the online version for a while. So one of the new things that uh, I think we're all seeing more and more is people making their books more open source and putting out review copies before they actually uh, get onto the bookshelf. So it's been fun seeing Klaus uh, develop this book over time. Uh, it's also uh, fun to chat with him about his background in biology and the data visualizations that he's been working with and making and reading uh, in that uh, area. It's always interesting uh, for me to see how people approach data visualization and working with data and communicating data in different kinds of fields. So I hope you'll enjoy this week's episode. Here's my interview with Klaus. So Klaus, welcome to the show. Thanks yeah. for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Congratulations on the new book. You must be relieved. I am. I am very relieved. It's out. <laughs> taking, are you taking a long break now? Uh, no. I mean, it's just <laughs> so, so much work got like put on the back burner while I was yeah. reading the book that now I just have to do all that work. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no rest, right? No rest. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about yourself and your background and, and give folks a sense of how you got interested in, in data visualization, and ultimately how you came to, to write this book? Yeah, sure. So I'm a professor of integrative biology at the University of Texas at Austin. I consider myself as a computational biologist. I do a lot of data science. Broadly speaking, I'm also quite involved lately in the R community. Originally, I'm actually a theoretical physicist, so I did my PhD in theoretical physics, and then I transitioned over to biology. And so I, I have some amount of physics background. I have a good understanding of biology, and I also have a fair amount of computing and data science background. And I've really always been interested in visualization, just like it's something I like. I like to make things look nice and to look mm. at visualizations. And so just something I've, I've cared for a lot over the years. And uh, you talk to my students, they'll, they'll tell you how picky I am when they <laughs> show their figures. I'm like, ah, the font is too small. And here there's two lines that are not quite in alignment. So somehow I also just pick up on subtle visual cues that other people might not be so sensitive to. Mm -hmm. Are you teaching data visualization classes in addition to the biology classes? I'm not. I, I might at some point in the future, mm -hmm. but I'm currently not. So I'm, my main class that I'm teaching is data science for biologists class. It's kind of um, it's meant as the next class that they take after they've taken biostats, and it just moves them a bit more towards doing practical data science. And as part of that, they learn how to make graphs and to interpret them. Uh, and then we also do some machine learning and some bioinformatics and things like that. But there isn't a dedicated visualization class that I'm teaching. Uh, we'll talk about the book, but but it's uh, it's just interesting to me to think about how you teach biologists these other skill sets. So do you think 
having a separate data viz class is necessary for those students or having it combined with these other data science skills the way you're teaching it now is is the way like is that the right way to do it or is having them separated out you would think a better way to do it so i think what i'm teaching now is an essential class that really almost everybody should take everybody should have some basic knowledge in data science data wrangling i teach some r tidyverse and some python and we just like learn how to take a large data set and get patterns out and so on and and that i think everybody should be familiar with and that's actually taught to undergrads and the idea is to to get them learn this relatively quickly in their curriculum i think a data viz class would be more an advanced class maybe primarily for graduate students or really dedicated undergrads so i think it would be much more of a specialized class versus right. general data science i feel certainly in the natural sciences every student in the natural sciences should have some basic data science skills mhm so you mentioned that you're teaching r and python yeah. um and i think the the book you did the graphs in in r as well right that's correct yeah And so is R your go-to like what are your favorite data viz tools? So yeah, for data visualization I exclusively use R. Actually the older I get the more I use R and the less I use Python. So it's kind mm. of an interesting transition that in the past I did a lot of Python and now I I'm in my own work almost exclusively R. They just have slightly different application areas. I feel Python is a good general purpose programming language if you just want to write a game or you want to build an interactive web page where people like enter information and get stuff back or so. Python is great for that, but for pure data science work, I I just feel that R in many ways is more convenient. Mhm. Do you find that your students struggle with learning R or is it I mean they're undergraduates so are they coming to it this is the first language that they're learning so it's it's just the uphill climb they're not trying to think around other languages that they may have already learned It's very mixed so actually the background in the class is incredibly mixed like some people have done tons of python and have never touched R others actually know already some R with our biostatistics class also uses R so they have used it a little bit um i personally feel that in particular the the tidyverse we can do a lot of interesting stuff without really having to think about programming like we get halfway through the class before we ever do a loop or ever do an if statement because we we just do things like in, i don't know how familiar you are with the tidyverse but like in particular mm-hmm. dplyr you like you have filter to pick rows and select to pick columns and then you group and you summarize and so you can do a lot without ever really thinking about what i call the logistics of the data you know if you have a for loop with an index variable and you like first number in your vector is the second number in the vector then you think about the logistics right right because if you write a filter statement give me all the numbers that are bigger than 10 then you only think about the logic and so i found that by teaching starting with a tidyverse i can really hone in on the logic without getting too bogged down by the logistics and mm-hmm. that actually almost works better if people have absolutely no background whatsoever like if they come already with some preconceived notion of what programming is and how you do data analysis they find it very difficult to switch that off and to program without using loops for example but if they've never programmed before they don't miss the loop Right. You're getting the first shot at their experience with programming, right? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the book itself? Now the print version's just coming out, so people get their hands on that, but you've had the 
The digital version's been online for a while, collecting comments. I would guess you've collected a lot of comments. Um, but do you want to walk uh, listeners through the, the goal of the book and, and what you hope they'll get out of it? Yeah, so the, the book really had its origin in me giving the same type of advice over and over to my mostly graduate students in the lab. So I would just find that like they would show me their figures and I had the same comments over and over. Maybe like one biggest one that was the first chapter that I wrote was like, everybody makes their access labels too small. Universal mm-hmm. truth of data viz, the access labels <laughs> are too small. And actually almost every visualization software the defaults makes the labels too small and yeah. so that's just like i i feel like i'm repeating myself and repeating myself and repeating myself and so then at some point actually i had, had thought about writing such a book for a long time and i didn't really feel that i had the technology in place to make it sufficiently convenient that i was willing to do it and uh, R has developed to the point, I mean, the entire book is written in R Markdown, right? All the figures are automatically generated. I can just press a button and the entire book gets rendered just as it mm-hmm. shows up on the web page. Uh, and that technology in, in that convenience has really been only around for a couple of years. Like if I had tried to write this book 10 years ago, I would have written it in LaTeX and I would have had to keep track of every figure individually. And it just, that always seemed too much of a headache. I wasn't willing to invest that amount of effort. So on some level, I wrote the book now because I had tools to write it now. Right. Um, yeah. And then when you commit to a book, then you also have to write all the chapters that maybe you didn't want to write, but they need to be there. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, the, the book is kind of three parts. The first part just goes through just all sorts of standard ways of visualizing data. How, how do you visualize amounts, how do you visualize associations between variables, how to visualize proportions, things like that, just the standard things, bar plot, scatter plot, line plot, and so on. And then the, the second part is about figure design, and that just goes through various things that one should think about. Like one big one is, for example, color choices, right? Like mm-hmm. How do you pick colors that work and also that work for colorblind people? And access labels, not making the figures too busy, but also not making them not busy enough. And then the, the last part um, is kind of the, the various other topics that I felt that should be in a book, but that didn't have clear, coherent, uh, maybe heading. And that includes things like how do we combine figures into a larger document? Like how do we tell a story with a figure? Just touch on this very briefly, but also things like how do you save a figure on your computer? <laughs> what's the right <laughs> format? A lot right. of these things that we, we kind of expect everybody to know, you know, what's the difference between a PDF and a PNG? Mm-hmm. When do you pick which one? And nobody ever really spells that out, right? Yeah. And like you have people that read carefully through the specs of these file formats and understand for them when to use which. Most other people just don't and just like think, mostly accidentally pick some sometimes it works out and often it doesn't is my yeah no i've I've been seeing a lot of people uh publishing you know reports or documents where the you know the text is nice and crisp and then all of a sudden there's like a blurry graph in the middle and then the text picks up right after it and it's it's jarring to see this you know nice crisp text and all of a sudden this bar chart that is clearly pixelated 
uh, because the, you know, uh, however they however they exported it from whatever tool they were using, they weren't using the right image format. So, um, yeah, I think that's a that is a big issue for people. Yeah, and like JPEG artifacts. <laughs> yeah, pet peeve. Yeah, They're all these little artifacts because people don't understand JPEGs. Or on the flip side, they understand that PDF is is essentially a um, resolution independent format and tends to give you the best results. And so they plaster all the PDFs into a Microsoft Word document, and then the document becomes completely unresponsive, right? You yeah. can't. I mean, you could print it, but like online or on the screen, trying to edit it, it doesn't work. So yeah, there's there's all these little tricks that everybody should know, but it's just too many of them, and mo most people don't. And so hopefully, yeah. my book can fill some of those. Yeah, that's great. I mean, the other thing about the book that I think is um, one of the things that's not really out there is you explore not just a standard line, bar, pie you know, area charts, there's, there's other chart types out there. And you spend some more times talking about those other graphs. So uh, I'm curious about your take on the standard charts, which I mean, however you define standard charts, but you know, if you think about like, you know, lines and bars and, and, and pies, versus non standard chart types, which, you know, might just include slope charts and dot plots as a as a starter, you know, they're, they're not the sort of core things, but but they are sometimes actually better ways to show data. And I'm curious how you balance the two when you're thinking about teaching people data viz or when you're thinking about what you see online in terms of people choosing different chart types. I think we, we should be adventurous, but we should mm -hmm. also be critical, right? So if, mm -hmm. if I can, if, if I can show some data set in, in a way that maybe is not so standard, but really brings out a key aspect of the data, then we should totally go for that. Uh, at the same time, you can also, like, if you go to this Xenograph's webpage, I mean, some of the ideas that some people try out really maybe <laughs> didn't quite work, but it's okay. I mean, we try it out and then either it works or it doesn't. There's a couple of things that I care a lot about. One is if, if you write a report with, say, five or six figures, I think it's actually really important that every figure looks different visually. Like if you have 20 pie charts, then after a while they all blend together and the audience really, I mean, oh, another pie chart, you know? And you might mm -hmm. be talking about a totally different topic now, but it's just all pie charts. And, um, and I should maybe not talk about pie charts because people have strong opinions on that. So let's talk about scatter plots, right? You're right. Everybody is on board. Scatter plots are a good idea when you have association data, right? But if I show you 10 scatter plots in a row after a while, you, you just, your mind shuts off and you can only, like, they all look the same, right? And so I yep. think it's actually really important to, to have a repertoire of different possibilities of showing data so that we can just keep it changing so that the audience sees, oh, okay, the scatter plot was this part of the story. And now we have, I don't know, a density plot. And that's, now we're talking about something else. Right? So you can really use, just like we can use color and we can use fonts and so on to, to make clear that we're now talking about something else, we can also switch up the type of visualization that we use to structure a document. I, I, I care a lot about that a lot. Because mm -hmm. I've, I've definitely, I've sat in like PhD committees where like every graph is a line that goes down <laughs> and you know, after 20 minutes, <laughs> right. I'm like, I can't keep this apart, you know? <laughs> And they're, they're all different things, but the graphs look all the same. They look all the same, yeah. 
Well, what about, I mean, I think report construction is, a, is an interesting topic in itself. I mean, there are lots of journals out there, at least in social science, where they require you to put the figures at the very end of the paper as an appendix, which always bothers me because I want them to be integrated with the rest of the the report. I want it to be an argument and the visuals are supposed to support the argument. And by putting them at the back, you sort of relegate them to this secondary status. Yeah, but do they print it like that or is it only when you submit and for uh, some of them put them in the back, some of them move it move it later on. Uh, I guess it just uh, yeah, so it differs by journal. Yeah, I know people um, care about that a lot. I'm I'm I guess I'm okay if the figures are all at the end, I can find them there. What I care more about is that the caption needs to be with the figure. Mm. The, the worst format is you have like a page with all the figure captions and then afterwards you just have all the figures separately mm -hmm. and then you have no idea which caption goes with which page. oh right uh, right like figure one here you know then then the title or the caption but then when you get down to the actual figure at the end of the paper it doesn't have that same text yeah yeah it's certainly easier to lay things out that way but i think it's a real disservice to the to the reader yeah i mean so this is a completely different topic right but yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I find scientific journals in their submission instructions they mix guidelines for how how the reviewer would want to look at it with how final production happens right mm -hmm. they make you submit the figures separately as separate image files they're really thinking about the final production of the paper rather than the initial review stage and I think we should just be allowed to just submit a PDF with all the figures embedded, however we want, wherever they, they fit correctly into the document flow. And once everybody agrees that this is an appropriate publication and we want to publish it, then we can worry about production. Mm -hmm. I wish this was more separated, but many, certainly scientific journals kind of muddle the two together. And that's where yeah. problems come from. <laughs> Now I'm guessing you're like me when you're reviewing a paper for a journal, you are commenting on the, on the visuals as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I was arguing with someone about this a, a couple of days ago. Now we're totally off topic of, of your book, but um, fine. Yeah. This, this, is, this is really interesting. So is there a responsibility from the, from the journals to encourage their reviewers to review the, the visuals as well? So responsibility is, is a strong word. So mm -hmm. I feel like... Ultimately, the responsibility is always with the author, is my own opinion. Like review is, the purpose of review is to improve the product. It's not necessarily to verify that the product is correct. Because certainly in biology, well, nobody's going to spend a million dollars and three years of trying to actually validate that everything is correct. Right, right. right. We have to, on some level, accept it as it is but then we can look at it we kind of do a basic sanity check if something sounds totally outrageous then we point that out and most of the time though certainly when i review i, I try to help the authors improve the paper and if if they have visualizations that clearly are not going to work for the audience it's actually in the author's interest if they point that out um, mm -hmm. in the end i i, I strongly believe in People have the right to embarrass themselves, right? So if I say this is really a bad visualization and they say, no, we like it, we want to have it that way, okay, well, it's your choice. But in at least I said it. Right, right. You, you feel like you've done your, your job as a reviewer. Yeah, exactly. Unless it's clearly wrong, right? I mean, right. things are just objectively wrong. Well, objectively <laughs> right. wrong when you point it out. But 
But if it's more, well, you really should consider using larger labels in all your figures because nobody can read this. If the author insists that they want to have figures nobody can read, I mean, in the end, it's their choice. Yeah. Have you ever written your review back to the editor and saying, look, you know, my comments to the authors were, were such and such, but really the graphs are so bad that, you, that this would really need to be resubmitted as an entirely new thing. Or the authors really need to rethink the way that they're presenting this because of the, the graphs are just so horrendous. I, I have done that. Yeah. 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 But then again, in the end, if the authors insist, I would say, okay, it's your choice. It's amazing to me that, well, maybe it's not amazing to me still, but I want to say it's amazing to me. There's not a lot of thought given to the reader, even of academic journals. So even if you're thinking about someone, you know, researchers thinking about communicating to other researchers, they still don't think about the audience. And the text is very dense and the graphs are really hard to read. And then you see these in publication. And I feel like there should be someone at some point who should be, you know, there's the editor, there's the peer reviewers, there's um, the, you know, the desk editor, then the editor might be actually laying things out that someone's got to say, look, this is really hard to understand. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's the reviewers, really, that should yeah. do that. And I, actually, also, when I work as editor, most of the reviews that I get are along those lines. Well, this really, I couldn't quite understand this. The authors, I encourage the authors to improve. Mm -hmm. I personally feel it's a wasted opportunity, right? If you write a dense paper that nobody can understand, then in the end, nobody's going to hear your message, mm -hmm. right? And so when I tell an, an author to maybe reconsider how they're presenting their work, I'm really trying to help them to get their message across better. Sure. Um, but some authors listen and others don't. <laughs> now, I'm curious about your experience in the biology literature, because I, you know, I spend obviously my time in the social science literature, and I, I dabbled in, in just perusing some biology literatures, and the graphs were like, I mean, I'm sure for biologists, they're second nature, but for me, you know, there's, you know, dendrograms and, and you know, things showing gene breakdowns, and, you know, they look completely foreign to me. So I'm curious about your experience in the biology literature and, and the type of graphs that folks use to present their research? Yeah, so graphs in biology can be wild. So the, the one thing that, that I think biology does well, but it might still be unusual when you come into it, is biologists are very good at, at drawing, drawing diagrams or schematics. So mm. you have a gene and you have a regulator, you have a promoter and so on, or like a pathway, those kinds of diagrams that uh, they just use the same visual language over and over. And so every biologist looks at it and says, oh, this is a gene and there's an enzyme and oh, there's a connection here. And if you have never seen those, it would just be boxes and arrows and you wouldn't know what is going on. So that actually, I, I think biologists do very well and other fields maybe could do more of that also. Mm -hmm. Then there's this other part and that's mostly in computational biology and like high throughput systems biology and so on. They use incredibly dense and complicated visualizations where, honestly, I, I feel like the typical nature paper these days, you open it up and there's like beautiful colors and it could work as modern art on your wall. And I am convinced no reader actually understands what's going on. <laughs> and, and the problem is not only are the visualizations incredibly complex, they also tend to be of incredibly derived quantity. You know, you, you do some mm -hmm. complicated measurement of millions of values, and then you calculate 
some sort of summary statistic of subsets of data and then you take those and you pool them again and average and then you integrate or whatever and in the end you still have a million numbers but they were like sent through a pipeline of 10 computing steps and really nobody can understand what it is so i'm, I'm very critical of that because i feel there's a lot of like it looks cool and people kind of think they should like it because clearly it was a lot of work but the insight it's not clear that they actually convey that much insight yeah the beauty and the complexity part might be uh, valuable in a different context but in the in the journal article world you want to make that argument in the end, there should be an insight, right? Yeah. After after we've spent, I don't know, $500,000 on experiments and graduate student time working for three years and making millions of measurements, it would be good if there was a clear insight at the end <laughs> and not just, oh, here's stuff. And right, right. So now we can we can come full circle and come back to the book then. Yeah. So that's the primary goal of the book is to help people use data viz to provide insights to their readers or their users uh, if if that worked out that would be great yeah we'll yeah we'll, i mean i i kind of touch on all of these things some of them maybe are only a short section so one thing i really care about in in writing reports say is i feel you always should go from data that is the closest to raw data and then as you go along, you kind of, you can work with more and more processed data until you have some very derived quantity at the end, right? So like you measure some quantitative variables and you start with a scatter plot and then you can turn that into a, maybe you do a regression, you have a correlation. And then if you have a lot of correlations and you can visualize them as a heat map, and then maybe you can um, summarize heat maps into a pie chart where like some grouping is this way, some grouping is that way. So that would be a sequence of you start out at something that's very close to some a number that you can imagine that was measured. At the end, you have some highly derived quantity. And, right. And it's really important to have this sequence. If you, if you go backwards, you immediately lose everybody. And if you just start at the end and never show the, the more, uh, so the less derived, parts of the analysis, then also everybody's lost. Right. That's somewhere in the book. It's only a few paragraphs, but it's in there. Right. Well, I'm sure people will check it out. So there's the, the online version, and then there's the print version that's just, that's just coming out. So, um, so good luck with it. Uh, I'm you. sure you're at least relieved that it's done. Yeah. And, uh, and congrats again on getting it out there. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. This is a lot of fun. We, we, we veered off a little bit, but this yes. is a lot of fun. All right. Thanks, Klaus. I appreciate it. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you will check out Klaus's book, The Fundamentals of Data Visualization. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show, please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcast provider or put a couple bucks a month towards the show uh, on the Patreon account. Uh, where you can uh, help support the show, help me uh, cover costs of editing and transcription services and all the things that uh, I need to bring the show your way. So I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Until next time, this has been the Policy Viz Podcast. Thanks so much for listening.